right, good morning. Um, yeah, I want one of those action Bibles. It's like the Sylvester Stallone study Bible. That was great. I want one of those. Um, so, and then also this morning, well, you're going to be, well, I've got now. Very good. So, yeah, we got a slide advancer, and I get to point and, and do that. So we got better uh, on our slides, but we'll, we'll, we'll get there on the microphone. Um, good morning. We're starting a new series today called The Community of the Gospelized. This is a series on the topic of Jesus's church. September, uh, as Andrew was talking about before, September is this time of new beginnings. And this week uh, marks a new school year for students and a new football season for fans. And maybe for many, a return to normalcy after a summer of warm fun. I think that there is something very powerful in the concept of seasons. And you'll notice that our preaching series will kind of follow the seasons of the year. Sometimes they'll be kind of directly related to a season of the church calendar like Advent or Lent. Other times those seasons will be reflective of cultural dynamics like summer vacation. By the way, wasn't that summer series, The Hope That Is In You, fantastic? I mean, just incredible. If you missed any of them, go check them out online. Um, Today, though, I want us to launch into this new series on the church because I want us to be able to lay down some groundwork for why we do what we do. I mean, why do we do this thing called the church? Have you ever told someone you go to church every Sunday and they look at you like, why would you do a thing like that? You ever wonder why we have church every Sunday? Why, why not once a month? Why not different, a different day of the week? You ever wonder why New Hope is a non-denominational church? If we're non-denominational, does that mean that we're anti-denominational? What about sacraments? What are they? How many are there? Why are they important? What about worship? Why do we choose to lean more on contemporary songs? The church has written music for the last few thousand years. Why do we predominantly sing songs uh, from the past 20? What about the church's call to mission? What's our responsibility in regards to evangelism, uh, community involvement? What's our responsibility to justice? What's our responsibility to stand for the vulnerable and the oppressed in this world? What about church space? What about buildings? If I leave here today and I forget my briefcase, which I often do, and I get home and I realize my mistake, I'm going to say to Amy, oh, I left my briefcase at the church. I'll refer to this building as a church, and I don't think anyone would complain that I would call this building a church. You should feel free to call this building a church, but I do think that there is some wisdom in unpacking the word a bit because referring to it as a church implies that there's something specifically churchy about this building. But then the danger is that you might use the reality of this environment to help you define what a church looks like. You might say, oh, well, what does a church look like? It it looks like stained glass windows, and it looks like pews, and it looks like an altar. It looks like crosses and pictures of Jesus and other biblical, holy-looking figures. Is that what a church looks like? 
let's take a look at a few ideas, a few um, other church environments, just to maybe uh, get our juices, our creative juices thinking and flowing. This is an example. This is a picture of St. Patrick's Cathedral uh, on Fifth Avenue in New York City. It has been described as an iconic Gothic American cathedral. The cornerstone was laid in 1858 and the doors of that church opened in 1879. The inside is absolutely breathtaking. I once went there on a school trip and the kids in my class, this is no joke, actually started crying. A few of them actually started crying when we walked in through the door. It was one of the stranger experiences of my life. The intricacy of the architecture is simply unbelievable. There was just something about being inside of this place. But we look at something as incredible as St. Patrick's Cathedral, and we ask ourselves, what does it mean for us to call that place a church? Take a look at this. This is the picture of the Dunker Church uh, in Sharpsburg, Maryland, when what is now federal property is part of the National Park Service. This church sits on the grounds of what 156 years ago, in a few weeks, hosted the Battle of Antietam, which was the bloodiest day in American military history. The Dunkers were German Christians who got their name from the way they dunked uh, those receiving baptism in the local river. On Sunday, September 14th, 1864, after service, the congregation fled when they realized that the Civil War was headed their way. During the battle, the building would be injured by cannon fire and small arms fire, and it would be used for a variety of different purposes for the next century until it was restored around the time of the centennial in 1962. Now, it's a part of the battlefield tour. I went inside a few years ago, and the inside is just plain walls, just a few wooden benches all kind of gathered around this one plain-looking room. Still, there was something about being inside of this place where this congregation had met for so many years and now is just this marked place that is uh, a part of uh, American history. There was just something about being in this place. Still, we look at a place like the Dunker Church and we ask, what does it mean for us to look at that building and say, that's a church? Here's a picture of a part of the Good News Bible Church in Ghana. It's a picture of a local worship gathering of uh, this Good News Bible Church in in Ghana. Their mother church has over 5,000 members, and they equip local leaders to go out into rural communities and gather congregations of just roughly 10 to 50 people. So it's outside, it's wooden benches, it's men, women, and children worshiping Christ. What does it mean for us to look at that picture and say, oh, that's, that's a church? Let's take a completely different point of view. This is an example of New Ho- or, uh, North Point Community Church. Uh, a lot of Andy Stanley fans out there. 38,000 people go through the doors of this uh, church, actually th- spread out through six campuses. This is a church whose declared mission is to lead people into growing relationship with Jesus Christ. 
Their strategy for doing that is to create environments where people are encouraged and equipped to pursue intimacy with God, community with with insiders, and influence with outsiders. North Point and other churches like it have a special interest in creating environments that unchurched people find compelling, which is why they choose to have this auditorium rather than a traditional sanctuary. So it's, for them, comfortable seating and carpeted floors and a big kind of open stage, and it's simple, yet it is striking. What does it mean, still, to look at an environment such as this and say, yeah, that, that's a church? One more example. New Hope Community Church. Similar to North Point in structure and theology, not quite at uh, 38,000 people yet, but, but certainly very different in facility. New Hope is a church which first met in a movie theater, then met in a historic Methodist church, and it now meets in a historic Episcopal church. The only place in the building that is exclusive New Hope space is the pastor's office. No less than four congregations use this facility for meeting throughout the week, in addition to three schools and multiple support groups, Bible studies, and community organizations. Yet, if I accidentally leave my briefcase here anywhere in the building, which is a distinct possibility, I would say, I left my briefcase at the church. What does it mean to call New Hope a church? Now, you're all smart people. You know where I'm going with this. The church is people, not buildings. Buildings are tools that people use in order to gather believers together for worship, discipleship, and fellowship before going out into the world and being the church wherever you might find yourself. But because we've made a habit of worshiping and doing other things in buildings, we've taken to the shorthand of calling church buildings churches. But again, you're all smart people. You can begin to see how this might be problematic. You might be comfortable referring to this building as a church and the school down the road maybe as, well, not a church, right? This is a church and that's a school. But if you're a member of this church... Or better yet, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, does that mean that you are under any less call to act like a Christ follower when you are in buildings that aren't churches or buildings that you wouldn't label churches? My point is this. We have a call to be the church wherever we go. Those gathering places can and will look different throughout the world, but the church Christ's one holy Catholic and apostolic church is called to be under something far larger than any roof. And to dig further into this, we're going to look um, at a crucial text that will help us to begin thinking about what it means to be the church. In a few minutes, we're going to take communion together. And before we take communion, we'll say a contemporary English version of what creed? the Nicene Creed. It's a statement of Orthodox faith that can be traced back to the 4th century AD. We say this creed before taking communion because one one of the first things that we say about the church is that the church is a confessing community. Now, normally, when we use the word confession, you might think about confessing your sins, but that's not necessarily what's important 
right here. My point right now is that we as a community, as a people, as a person who's personally committed to following Jesus, that we declare details about our faith. We confess them regularly. We confess them so regularly that we get them deep in with in, deep within us so that they become a part of us so that we don't forget them so that when we're put in a position to give the account for the hope that is in us and you're feeling the pressure and you can't remember your own name let alone Jesus's you can use those words to remind you of who Christ is and who you are in Christ church history is full of statements of faith the Nicene Creed, the Apostles' Creed, the Westminster Confession, etc. One of my personal favorites, just because it's only three words long, is the radically controversial creedal statement, Jesus is Lord. I love this one because it's easy to remember and because it comes straight from Scripture. Another confession that is perhaps one of the more important utterances of all time is what has been come to known as the Caesarea Philippi Confession. And that's the confession made by the Apostle Peter in Matthew 16. Let's take a look at that. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, about 25 miles north of the Sea of Galilee, this is the, like the tippy-top of most Bible maps. If your Bible has a map of like first century Judea, most likely Caesarea Philippi is the very top of that map. It's a long way from Jerusalem. When Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? Now, before we go any further, Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man some 80 times throughout the Gospels. Most think this is a reference to the prophecy in Daniel 7, which sees one like a human being, or a Son of Man, approaching the Ancient of Days, God, and being handed dominion over all things. So Jesus is being a bit mysterious here, but I think the disciples, their response is at least at first a bit more matter-of-fact. I could be wrong, but I think that their response was probably fairly casual, as if they were just kind of giving Jesus the word on the street. They said, well, um, you know, some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah, still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. So it would have been easy for Jesus and John the Baptist to get confused with one another. Um, Elijah was a prophet who was said to precede the Messiah. So maybe Jesus was just there to introduce the Messiah. Or maybe Jesus was simply just one of those great prophets like Jeremiah sent by God to deliver a great word of the people to Israel. And before we move on, there's something very practical that we can't miss here. If we go out into the street and ask folks who Jesus was, the answer would most certainly vary. Some would immediately think of a white guy with a beard. Others would get angry that you asked the question at all and just walk away. Some would say, well, well, he's the Savior, right? Others would say, well, he's the guy who did some neat things and he said some things about love and kindness, but they would also emphasize that he was just a guy, no more special than the rest of us. 
Some would say that Jesus exists in the same way that Santa Claus exists. Because he was kind of based on a real guy, but most of what is said about him was just made up by people who needed a fairy tale. One woman, in a video I watched this week, when asked who Jesus was, declared immediately, Jesus died for my sins. And then proceeded to say that for this reason she can feel free to party as much as she wants And as long as she's truly sorry, she's saved. Some would call Jesus a liar. Some would call him a prophet. Some would call him a fantasy. Some would call him a racist. Some wouldn't call him at all. Some would get upset for you even asking the question. From the first century to today, there was never going to be a time when Jesus wasn't going to be a controversial figure. Even if we believe him to be Lord, often we sink into this habit of treating the topic in the abstract. But Jesus sees straight through that tactic and puts that question right back on them in a very personal level. He looks at them and says, yeah, 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 I get all that. I I know the word on the street. What do you say? Who do you say that I am? I mean, I know what your English teacher said I am. And I know who you think your kids should say that I am. But I ask, who do you say that I am? And now at this point in the conversation, we're actually told that it's Peter who speaks up and gives us this confident, straightforward answer. His response, um, which has been referred to as the Caesarea Philippi Confession, is this. You are Messiah, the Son of the living God. Other translations uh, might say you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Essentially, you are Lord. You're the one that we've been waiting for. You are the one we will follow. Several house churches are studying J.I. Packer's book, Knowing God. I started that this week. In the book, Packer lays out his own creedal statements. He, he, he lays out kind of five foundational principles that he plans to build on from there on in, in the book. And he gives the reader this beautifully written statement of orthodox theology. And after laying out this, this theology, he says, in light of these basic truths, these general and basic truths, we're in a position of travelers who after surveying a great mountain from afar, traveling around it and observing how it dominates the landscape and determines the features of the surrounding countryside, now approach it directly with the intention of climbing it. So for Packer, he was using those principles in order to build what would become a book about God. But for Jesus... His hear, uh, he hears Peter say those words, and he makes a radical declaration. Jesus looks at Peter and he says this, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. And the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. This is a packed piece of scripture. But a few points that we shouldn't miss. First, there is a principle of revelation here that we can't miss. Jesus is saying, blessed are you, Simon. Um, Blessed. 
rejoice, be happy. Um, For it is not of your own power and your own cunning and your own intellect that you have confessed this great thing. It's not because, oh, wow, look at you, Peter, you really figured this great thing out. It's not because you're something really special, Simon. Rejoice because God is doing something special in you. He's given you a precious revelation about himself and his son. The idea that you would confess that thing um, that he's given you will be the mark of the church for centuries to come. Another thing that we can't miss is that it appears that Jesus changes Simon's uh, Simon's name to Peter at that moment. And that's not necessarily true. There's a lot of discussion among Bible scholars whether or not this was the moment that Jesus changed Simon Peter's name, uh, Simon's name to Peter. I, I don't really know. What I do know is that Peter means rock, or it's like he was calling him Rocky. This is a bit ironic, given that Peter's exploits in the Gospels tend to be anything but like steadfast and solid. Yet Jesus tells Peter that he will use him in a powerful way for what is to come. Specifically, he says, I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock, I will build my church. The word church there is the word ecclesia, which means gathering or assembly. Some would want to stress that what's going on here is that Peter is being named by Jesus as the cornerstone of the church's infrastructure for what was to come. So Roman Catholics see the Pope as someone who is in apostolic succession, traced back to Peter at this very moment when he's given the keys of the kingdom of heaven. So the idea is that Peter is the rock on which the church would build, uh, that Christ would build his church. Others would want to stress Peter's confession that Jesus was the Messiah, the son of the living God. Um, They would want to stress that it is around this confession that the church is built. As Packer put it, the confession is like the mountain that dominates the landscape and determines the features of the surrounding countryside. So, as we embark on this series Um, on the church. Just a few questions for us to consider. Number one, what's your personal confession? Who do you say that Jesus is? Is he Lord of all? Is he Lord of your life? Or is he simply someone that you often hear about on Sunday mornings who doesn't actually have much impact on the rest of your life? Number two, have we allowed our confession that Jesus is Lord to permeate the surrounding countryside of our lives? Do our work habits reflect the confession that Jesus is Lord? Do our family traditions reflect the the confession that Jesus is Lord? What about our spiritual habits? What about our school habits? We'll dive deeper into those issues as we move through the series. But for now, ask yourself, what choices could be made to better respond to the grace that Christ has offered us? And third, the community that Christ has created must be saturated in the confession that Jesus is Lord. 
I stole the name of the series, The Community of the Gospelized, from the writer Mike Bird, who wrote a textbook that was one of the most um, uh, useful textbooks, useful books that I've ever owned, um, called Evangelical Theology. And about the church, Bird says this. He says that the church is the custodian of the gospel, that carries the gospel with her wherever she goes. In fact, where there is the true and authentic gospel, proclaimed in word and embodied in the sacraments, there, will one, there one will find a true and authentic church. So my prayer this morning is that may New Hope Community Church ever be a church faithful to the true gospel of our Lord Jesus. To that end, we're going to now take communion together. The Mass, the Eucharist, the Lord's Supper. Our communion table at New Hope is open to all those who call upon the name of Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. If you're not there, if you haven't yet made the decision to confess Christ as Lord, I want you to know that we love you. You, I want you to know that you're welcome here and that we hope that you'll think of New Hope as a place where you can come not having to hide um, your doubts or your questions. When we take communion, you shouldn't feel obligated to participate. Feel free to just have a few moments of silence in your seat. I will add this, though, that communion is one of two sacraments that Jesus instituted the other being baptism. Baptism is a public declaration of your faith. So if you find yourself coming forward for communion and you haven't yet been baptized, that's okay, but I will ask you to come to me later and discuss the possibility of making that faith public in your life. So the bread, just to let you know, is different than usual as our baker is out of town this weekend. Uh, The red is wine and the white is grape juice. And after coming forward, uh, you can come down the center aisle and work your way back around. I'll ask you to take the elements back to your seats where we will confess them, or where we will take them together. Uh, First, though, let us confess and stand and join as churches throughout the centuries have done in the reading of the Nicene Creed. 